The Bible reading this morning comes from, uh, following on from last week, one Samuel, chapter nineteen, beginning at verse eight, and you'll find that on page four hundred and fifty. Once more war broke out and David went out and fought with the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing with the harp. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him. As Saul drove the spear into the wall, that night David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment, putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this? and send my enemy away so that he escaped. Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away, why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Sorry, yeah, I'll just stop there. A riveting story that you could just keep reading and reading. Barry did tell me he read through all those chapters this week and it is one of those stories that what happens next? What's going to happen? Uh, It is a great story. We are picking up a second week of looking at uh, just some things that happened in the life of David. Um, We've got a few chapters to cover this morning, so we'll be moving fairly quickly. But how about we pray before we look at God's word? Dear Father, we do thank you for the way you reveal yourself to us through your word, through characters, particularly for someone like David, and through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you speak to us even today. And Lord, we just pray that you'd be shaping us and moulding us as your children Today we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I was listening to a talk during the week by a man named Bishop T.J. Jakes. He's an African-American preacher in America, of course. Uh, and he tells a story of how his upbringing was very poor. He was very uh, missed out on a lot of things as a child. He's um, basically his father's carer who was suffering a lung condition, often mopping up his dad's blood and that. And he says, that was before I was even 10. It was a very hard life for him. And somebody asked him the question, would you change anything? And he laughed and he said, oh yes, lots of things I'd like, I'd like to change, but I wouldn't. Because I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't gone through what I had. Now you can sort of understand what he means, isn't he? I'm sitting here today because of what went through in my life in the past. The events or the people impact us, they change us and they mould us into different characters, into the person, our personalities and our, uh, the style of person that we are today. So even for us, we can think, who's made you into the person that you are? Who are the sort of people or characters or events that have shaped you into the person you are right now? It doesn't matter if you're older or younger, because I'm sure that we can think of things that have happened in our life that make us who we are. Or we could ask a question a different way. Who's the sort of person or what sort of person you want to be? What sort of character would you like to have in the future? And then you start to think, well, what might God have to do in my life to build up those sort of characteristics? For example, we looked at David last week. David uh, being anointed, being made um, chosen as God's chosen one, went out and killed Goliath with amazing faith. And we'd say, man, I would like to have the faith of David. We talked about it last week. That amazing faith, looking in the face of death in Goliath and to go, I'm going to trust God that my God is bigger than him and to just go in there without even shaking, no hesitation, because my God is bigger than him. I'd love that faith. But we forget about all the events that led him to that. What led him to that? God had David in the fields for weeks, months and years, looking after sheep, growing in patience. Uh, I know I couldn't handle that. When I was a kid, we had sheep for about three months, I think. They do nothing that you want them to do. But yeah, David did it for months and months. They ended up on the plate, by the way. It was, ended a good story for us. But for David, he's looking after his dad's sheep. He comes across a lion, fights a lion, fights a bear off, fights him. And all this time is building trust. I mean, there's two highlights out of years in the field. I'd imagine most of the time it's just there mundane. But yet during that time, God was building him, shaping him, trusting him to, to take on that big step of Goliath. Now, I'd like the Goliath moment to see if I could do it, but I don't necessarily want all the hours in the field. That's the sort of thing we're thinking through. What shapes us and what's got to happen to get us to that point? Well, today we're looking at uh, a bit more of David's story. That he, We know how it ends. He's going to be a great king of Israel. But what shapes him to that? Because I think when we think through all the things that have got to happen to make us the person we'd like to be, some of us are going, man, I don't think I want to take this on. I'm not sure if David knew that he's going to be the great king if he knew what was going to happen to him over these following chapters, whether he would really choose to take it on or not. It's a big ask. But if we want to be people of faith, God's children, standing up for him, do we actually want to be go through life getting challenged all the time, developing that sort of faith? Well, have a look at David and then we'll revisit the question for us. Because David is a picture of faith. 
particularly when things are going well. Because a bit of a summary, last week we looked at chapters 16 and 17, where we saw David picked out of the fields as a younger son. He's anointed. This is God's man. God's anointed him. This is going to be God's future leader. Then we saw how he's uh, put in, got a role in the palace and got great reputation. It's like that seemed to work for him as well. Went to the battlefield and while everybody's running from Goliath, he picks up a few stones. He says, I'm going to trust God in this and bang, Goliath's dead. And David claims a victory. Everything seems to be going well for David. If you read chapter 18, I'll just pick you out a few highlights. 18, similar things happen because things just seem to get better for David. Verse 5, he has more military success fighting the Philistines and others. Uh, Verse 6, he gets... um, covered in this popularity when he comes back to Jerusalem and this parade is on and all the women are lining the streets and they're singing songs you know Saul has killed his thousands but David is ten thousands I mean what a great welcome home parade that everybody's honoring you like that verse 14 he has more success because the Lord is with him verse 16 he's even more popular everybody likes him from the army to the people verse 30 his success just keeps growing and growing and his popularity keeps growing and growing. It seems everything David touches seems to work. He's getting the glory, the honour and the fame and the reputation. He's trusting God through it. God's using him through it. But it's all a good news story. It'd be nice to go from here to jump forward 10 years. He's not going to become king of Israel for another 10 years. So we go, that'd be nice to go uh, to 2 Samuel 5 when I finally get the crown on my head. But now there's going to be a lot of things happen in his life that's really going to test him. We often think of uh, Job when life gets hard for us. When Job, uh, when God is having a conversation with Satan and Satan says, we know Job's only following you because all the good things you give him, you've fenced him in with all these blessings. How can he not trust you? God says, well, you know, I think you're wrong. Try him. So Satan goes away, stripping away all the blessings, all the things he had to test what's at the heart of Job's faith. This is what happens with David. How are things going to go when things aren't so well for David? See, is he a picture of faith when things aren't going so well? Because that's a different story, isn't it? It's much harder to know that God is in control, to trust him when life seems to be falling apart. David's going to lose a whole lot of things out of his life, and it's carefully listed out over the next few chapters. The first thing he loses is his freedom in chapter 19. Uh, we see Paul tells his son Jonathan and all his attendants to kill David. Saul's jealous of David. Saul's the king, this young punk coming up to take his crown. He's threatened by him. So already, to this point, Saul's already, before we even hit chapter 19, Saul's already tried to kill him with a spear. He's led David out to the Philistines, saying, if you want to marry my daughter, I want you to get 104 skins. Philistines aren't just going to hand over their foreskins. So I think you're going to have a hard time doing this. You might even get killed. David comes through. Uh, He now sends the soldiers to his house, which we had in what we just read, to kill him. But he's basically saying, anyone, anyone, just get rid of David for me. He hates him that much. Now, where we see, I don't know whether you've picked this up, but every now and again you hear the story of uh, people who have avoided the law. You know, they've convicted, but they haven't gone to court. They're on the run. um, And they haven't gone to jail. And we go, well, they need to go to jail to pay the price. 
out of jail, they've got freedom. But yet you hear their stories when they're always running from the police, always running, trying not to get caught. They said, I haven't got freedom. Why is on the run? Here's David, an innocent man, suffering injustice. Now he's going to be on the run. In chapter 18, uh, from verse 29, uh, it tells us, Saul beca- became still more afraid of him, David, and he, maintained, uh, he remained his enemy the rest of his days. While ever Saul's alive, David's going to be on the run. David's not going to have freedom. It's gone. He's trusting God, and to do that, he must run from Saul. He's lost his freedom. Second thing, he's going to lose his wife. I don't know whether you picked that up in the story. Uh, We haven't met Michael formally. Michael's Saul's daughter. You might recall last week we talked about whoever's going to uh, kill Goliath will get the prize of his daughter. So Saul says, hey, here's my daughter. Why don't you come and marry her? Because that was the prize. Um, got the wedding date all set up. And then at the last minute said, ah, tricked you, David. I'm going to get her to marry someone else. So that wedding didn't work out. Then he comes through and says, look, if you want my next daughter, Michael, um, Michael is a female. I just want to make that clear. And I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Michael. If you want to marry her, you've got to get the 104 skins. From the Philistines, that'll, you know, that'll test you. I don't think you're going to come through. David's so committed to this that he takes 204 skins. He really wants to marry Michael. I mean, that's chivalry, isn't it? Isn't that sort of like, I love you so much, not 104 skins, 200. It's got to impress her that he's done that. So he's done that, and then finally they can get married. So he's married to Michael. Here they are. But yet Saul is chasing him. And he wants him dead. And as we read, Michael saves his life. She says, look, they're after you. They're going to kill you. You need to escape tonight. So she helps him out the window. Not only does she help him out the window, but she stays back herself to put the soldiers off, to buy him time to escape. She could have said, hey, look, let's go together. Let's run together. But the chances are the soldiers would have come in, found them missing, chased them down, would not have worked. But she said, I'm going to save you. A great act of love. And David leaves not knowing would he ever see his wife ever again. Because he's running now. Now I might say, oh, well, it's kind of an arranged marriage, you know, maybe this wasn't so much love. But actually it goes to length pointing that out, uh, that it is love. Chapter 18, verse 26, it says, she loved David, just to make it clear. Uh, He really wants her, takes the foreskins to get her. And then this act of sacrificial love, I'm going to stay back so you can make escape good, is a great act of love from her. But yet David runs for his own life, not knowing whether he's going to see her again. So he's lost his wife. He's also going to lose Samuel, because where does he run to? He runs to Samuel, the prophet, God's man. If you've got questions for God, which I'm sure David has, because when he goes there, it says he went to Samuel, the prophet. He told him what was going on, uh, looking for guidance. It's like Saul's been doing all this stuff to me. Um, I don't know why it's going on. I'm God's anointed one. I've left my wife. Is Is this right? You want to go to the man of God, the prophet, to answer his questions. Now, Saul, again, finds out David's gone to, to um, Samuel. 
sends his men to get him. This is where God comes in and saves David. God sends his spirit down. Uh, see, David, um, Samuel are with another group of, you might say, little P prophets. There are other prophets there. When the soldiers come in, God sends his spirit onto the soldiers and they start prophesying which doesn't really explain exactly what they're doing, but they're talking about God. It's almost like they're, they've forgotten about their mission and they're starting to talk about God now. So they're, they're talking about God. They start prophesying and forget about David. Saul says, that's no good. I'll send more soldiers. Same things happens again. They start prophesying. Sends a third group of soldiers. God sends the Holy Spirit on them. They start prophesying. Saul says, can't have this. I'm going to kill David myself. Goes down there and he starts prophesying. God's just having a game with these guys. Just saying, look, I'm going to get you to forget about your own mission. Talk about me. And while this is all going on, David escapes. Goes off again. But while he's escaping, this is the last time we hear of Saul, of uh, Samuel. Samuel uh, is... He's around, he's sure, but it's the last time David will speak to him. The next time we hear of Samuel uh, will be, not be for a few chapters, and that's announcing that he's dead. There's another thing that happens after that we hear about Samuel. That's another story in itself. But this is the last time we hear Samuel talking when he's alive. Chapter 5, he's dead. So David loses his spiritual leader because he's on the run. You might say at least David's got his good friend Jonathan. We sort of missed over him. But Jonathan, uh, who's Saul's son, is best mates with David. And David's on the run. He's trying to work out what's going on. So where does he go to? He goes to Jonathan. Uh, we pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1. He says to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Jonathan says, look, I'll talk to dad. I'll sort it out. I'm sure it's a misunderstanding. It'll all be fine. Jonathan goes to talk to his dad, Saul. Saul is really angry. He wants David dead. Jonathan comes back to report back to David. Yeah, dad wants to kill you. He wants to kill you bad. You need to run. You need to go because he will take your life. Because Saul will use Jonathan to take David. So David's now going to lose his best friend. Because he's on the run. Pick it up in verse 41. This is after um, Jonathan has given the news to David. And it says how David bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. This after he's heard the news, he must leave. Then they kissed each other and wept together, a Middle Eastern tradition, a show of affection. But David wept the most. Funny little note there, isn't it? This is really hurting David. This is not a game. Lost his wife lost his spiritual leader. Now he's losing his best mate. It's really hurting. You'd almost be starting to ask the question, well, what more can I lose? I'm pretty much done here. I've lost everything. But it gets worse. David escapes. He escapes to a group of people, a group of priests at Nob. They're known as the priests of Nob. And I know you're thinking Monty Python at this stage. That the story's getting that ridiculous. Uh, there is this place called Nob, and it's made up of lots of priests. But he goes there for their help. But he knows if he tells them he's on the run from Saul, he might not help them. So he deceives them by saying he's on a secret mission from Saul, but he hasn't got any food or weapons. So they give him some bread. They said, the only weapon we've got is this sword. Oh, by the way, it's Goliath's sword. He says, I know that. I've used it before. Thank you very much. He takes their, what they've got and then keeps going. 
you know, this is a funny little detail, a little hiccup in the story that so far everybody he's spoken to has been taken away from him. Priests of Nod help him out, but David continues running. We're going to come back to the priests of Nod later on in the story. But where does David go to now? He's in Israel, the king of Israel, Saul's chasing him. Where would be the safest place for him to hide out? Philistine country. If he goes to the enemy country, they, they hate him there as well, but at least he might be safer than Saul chasing him. So he goes uh, to Gath. Gath is the, just happens to be the city that Goliath come from. Just only a short time earlier. There is mates, there is family live at Gath was Goliath that David killed. But he goes there uh, thinking he'll be safer than staying in Israel. He goes up there, uh, the king of Gath, uh, his servants grab him. And you can imagine David going up to the city walls and them saying, isn't this David? Isn't this the guy that killed Goliath, our hero? And here's David with Goliath's sword in his back, uh, his backpack just walking in there. So they bring him before the king. They bring him before the king. And now, what's David going to do? Because their report is, chapter 21, verse 11, isn't this David the king of the, of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. This would be a great moment for David, a great as in enormous moment for David just to realize how far he's come and how much he's lost that when he hears the song he remembers that song was for me my victory parade all the women out in the streets Saul has killed his his thousands David his ten thousands that was the grand moment when now his enemies are singing it before his enemy king mocking him going, isn't this the one that's meant to be killing the 10,000 Philistines? Yet he's before us in our city. No wonder David's afraid. And at this point in time, you've got to start to think, what would he do? There's this fight or fly kind of tactic. You're going to fight your way out of it or you're going to fly. You're just going to run and escape. David's got a third strategy. He's going to play dead. We can pick it up uh, in verse 13. David pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, leaving sal- sal- letting saliva run down his beard. You can imagine, this is the one that's killed the ten thousands. He's lost his dignity at this point, hasn't he? He's lost everything, including his dignity. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man. This is one of the great lines of the Bible. Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? I did hear a story once about a man who uh, was deciding whether to have more children with his wife. They'd already had a few. And he says, God, what do you want me to do? Flicked open his Bible looking for guidance. Come up with this verse. Must there be more mad men in my house? He goes, God, you're right. No more kids for us. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But you get the point of what's going on. Often you see in Hollywood movies where you get the, the good guy, the hero, gets this injustice done to him. He gets everything stripped away from him. He loses everything. And you get the bad guy who's chasing him, hunting him down. And you get to a point in the movie where the 
where the good guy says, you can take all my stuff, you can take everything I've got, but you'll never take my dignity. And then the usually, usually the story turns around, he starts fighting back, and then comes out the winner, has the victory. This is not happening for David. He's lost his dignity. He's become a nobody. They're laughing at him, mocking him. He's lost everything. David's being stripped of everything around him, the people, even his dignity. There is a bit of hope uh, that he runs off again. They let him go and he runs off into a cave and he's there alone and his family find him. His mum, dad and some of his family come around, presumably to comfort him, but there's a good chance, we're not told exactly, that Saul is actually hunting them as well. If you hate David so much, why wouldn't you take it out on his family? So they've come to hide out with David in a cave, as well as we're told 400 men who are, quote, in distress, in debt and discontent. I can imagine David at this point in time going, Lord, I just need some cheerfulness around here. What did you do? (laughs) Sent me 400 stressed out, angry men running from debt collectors. What is going on? This is not a fun place. But David realises that everyone there is in danger. Saul's after him, his men are after him, he can't go to Philistine country again, he's hiding out in in a cave, all these other people are finding him, it's a matter of time Saul comes, he's got to look after his family. So he takes his mum and dad uh, to Moab, Moab's a neighbouring nation who again is an enemy of Israel, but they're going to be safer with the enemy than living under Saul, he takes them to them to leave them, to say goodbye to them, being safer there than in Israel. You see it in chapter 22, verse 3, when he's pleading to the king of Moab, "Uh, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? You can see this question going on his head. God is always in control. I don't know what's going on. In fact, I just need to find out what would God do with me? What would he have with me? What's this all about? But I need to say goodbye to my mum and dad because at this point in time, their life's in danger. They're too close to me. So now he's lost his freedom, he's lost his wife, lost his spiritual leader, his best friend, his dignity. Now he's lost his family. Before anything that David touched turned into success. But how quickly can things turn around? Because everything he touches seems to be taken away from him. They either lose everything, they get taken away from him, or even worse, because it does get worse. Remember the priests of Nob that we mentioned, we bumped into along the way? Saul gets word that they've helped David. Saul sends his men down there, so let's sort this out. Where have they gone? What have they done? What have you done? Why are you helping him? They plead innocent uh, because they were innocent. They didn't know he was on the run from Saul. So they're pleading innocent. Saul's had enough, accuses them of treason, and puts them to the sword. We pick it up at verse 18, where the king ordered this man, Dog, Doig, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doig, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who, who wore the linen ephod. That means they were priests. He also put to sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkey and sheep. See, they didn't, know, they didn't go out of their way to help David. David come to them, lied to them, but just by association, they've lost everything. They've been put to the sword. They've paid the price for coming 
too close to David. But when David hears, because one guy escapes, uh, this guy, Abiathar, he's a priest. He escapes and he runs to David, he finds David and tells him what's gone on. Now you can imagine when David hears this, what his response is. That he says, how have I done this? Because he feels responsible. In verse 22, uh, we're told, Then David said to Abiathar, after hearing the news of the town put to death, That day when Diog the Edomite was there, see Diog was an insider and he heard David's plans, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. So even the people who helped David pay the price. It cost them with their life. So even if you're near David, this is the lesson, even if you're near David, you will lose everything, maybe even die. But yet here's the question. If you were Abiathar, the priest, who escaped, saw his family died at the hands of Saul because of David, knowing that anything that David touches at the moment turns rotten, that if you go near David, you will lose everything, maybe even lose your life, where would you run? Would you run to David hiding in a cave? Because there is an alternative. See, Saul is offering an alternative to people as well. Instead of following David, because David's all uh, the flavour of the moment for a little while before you get killed, if you know him. Before all that happened, Saul's offering this, this carrot to come and trust him and follow him. You can pick it up in chapter 22, verse 7, where Paul's, uh, Saul is having this speech and he's comparing himself to David and what he can offer. He says, you'll never have fields and vineyards if you go on following David. He's never going to give you fields and vineyards. I can give you fields and vineyards and more. I can do that. Follow me, he's saying. You will never have important positions following David. He's not going to give you any power. He's on the run. He's nobody. He says, I can give you power. I can give you authority over hundreds, if not thousands of men. Follow me. Trust me. Saul promises uh, a big dream that sounds very attractive. You know, being out in the farm with your vineyards, having lots of people under you. Uh, sounds very attractive, doesn't it? Or go to, uh, go to David and have your life threatened. Saul's way, David's way. For Abiathar, well, you know, I'd be tempted by what Saul's offering. But he goes to David. He goes to David, finds him in a cave, tells him the bad news. And what does David say in response? Verse 23. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. I think that's just acknowledging. You can come with me. This is going to be a hard ride. Your life is not going to be the same if you follow me. Life as you know it is gone because you're going to be on the run from this man. But he also says... You will be safe with me. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Your life will never be the same. You'll probably lose everything, but you're going to be safe with me. Echoing that whole thing of God's got a plan. He's got a purpose. I'm just not sure what it is now, but I'm trusting him that it'll all work out okay. And Abiathar stays. Now, I'm not sure whether you play that game. If you say, oh, I was Abiathar, what would I do? Because I'm thinking, I'm not sure whether I'd go with David. Sounds like an adventure, but too much of an adventure that I want to handle. But that's, it's laid out in the line. This is, we get to the end of this section, and that's what we're left with. 
Uh, all the events that have unfolded, all the bad news for David, ends up in this cave. But we see this radical faith in David. It's a radical faith because it's certainty in a God in an uncertain world. He says, I'm not sure how this is all going to unfold. In fact, it's pretty uncomfortable the way it's going now. But I'm going to trust God because he's a big God. And you can see what is going on in David's mind. Because when he's hiding in this cave, he writes a whole bunch of psalms, psalms that we have today. Um, I'll give you a few numbers if you want to read them, out, read them during the week. But Psalm 52, Psalm 56, Psalm 57, Psalm 34, a whole bunch of them that he's writing his thoughts down, doesn't know what's going on. I'll read you a couple of verses from Psalm 57 where he says, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. You see that acknowledging, man, this is uncomfortable, this is painful, but I'm going to trust in you. Just going to trust in you because I know you're big. And then verse 2, though, he says, I cry out to, my, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He says, I know God has a plan. I know he's working in my life to, to give it some sort of outcome. For God to be glorified in some sort of way, I can't see it right now. But I've just got to trust God and go through it all. See, David himself has got two ways. Is it too late for him to go to Saul and say, look, I repent of everything. I'm not going to trust God anymore. I'm going to trust you. I want the fields. I want the armies. I want the good old days, how they were before. Or is he going to turn on God and say, curse God. This is not worth it like Satan thought Job would do. Curse God and just be done with it. It's just not fun. It's not life the way I pictured it. But yet David goes through these things and instead of having those sort of questions, he grows. The more he's challenged in his life, the more his faith seems to grow. His understanding of God seems to get bigger and bigger. I don't know the purpose of this, but I know you've got a big plan. And in fact, it's through these events, seeing David at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, I'm sure is shaping him to be the greatest king Israel will see. Not just in his rulership, but in his faith. It's playing out. He's shaping David through the good and the bad to be the man that he ends up being. Because he trusts that God has a purpose. He grows through it. I want to read to you an email from a pastor I know from Sydney, Steve Chong. Uh, he went over to Syria. He was invited over there through Open Doors, who do a lot of stuff with refugees. And he went over there just to see firsthand what is going on, particularly for the Christians that are fleeing ISIS. And he tells this story of a man who, who had to leave everything behind, and he shares his story. I'll read it for you. It's a bit... Actually, the email's quite long, and what I was thinking I'll do is we'll put it as an attachment to the weekly email, if you want to see the full email. But I want to read out to you uh, a portion of it now. Uh, Steve says, Today I met a hero. Although he wanted me to, to show his face and tell you his name, I will not because his statements are too provocative. My faith is so conditioned to be risk-averse that I double-checked. Aren't you afraid of saying these things? He laughed and said, Afraid? I'm not afraid. They can try to hurt me, but they can't. They can take away what is most precious, uh, but they, sorry. They can try and hurt me, but they can't take away what is most precious. My Jesus lives in my heart, and they can't take him. 
You see, this man was rich. When I say rich, I mean he owned three houses, multiple cars, a kilometre worth of undeveloped land. He managed an office of multiple staff, which he ran with, his, with an Islamic man who was his best friend. When ISIS swept through his town to cleanse it of Christians, he picked up his wife and five kids and fled for fear of their lives. As they ran, his best friend phoned and took pleasure in telling him, I have taken everything of yours. I've taken your house. I'm actually calling you from inside your house, which is now mine in the name of Isis. To my, which my friend replies, I will come back one day, only to hear the chilling reply, no, I will chase you to the next town to which you run, to which you run now, and will take everything again. The betrayal and emotional hurt added to fear for physical safety makes what ISIS do so pervasively sinister. <coughs> Yet my hero friend continues, They come in the name of ISIS, but we will stand firm in the name of Jesus Christ, and we will not be afraid of them. We leave our houses, but I know that if we leave our faith, we lose everything. I asked him what he would do if he was to see his best friend, ex-best friend, again. He smiles and said, I will love him and I will leave him alone because my Lord teaches me to do that. But nothing could have prepared me, Steve says, nothing could have prepared me next for what I believe is truly prophetic message to the Western church. Because the hero goes on. Before they took away everything, I was a Christian only by name. But now my faith is alive. Isis is a gift. If Isis comes to the West, it is, it is a gift from the Lord. It will, wake up, it will be a wake-up call for a sleepy church. If you want to spend your time working for money and more houses and just going to church on Sundays, you can lose it. But if you work for God, as he points upwards, if you work for God, you can never lose it. So I say to the Western church, wake up, wake up. Steve says, I was cut to the heart when he concluded with this assessment of us. Christians in the West don't want to die because they're more in love with life than Jesus. This statement rocked me, not because I was offended, but because deep down, I know it's true of me. It's very sobering, isn't it? What could we lose? What could we give up? Knowing that God's got a plan, God's got a purpose. It's virtually echoing what Jesus called his disciples. When Jesus explained that he was going to the cross, that he was going to be killed for us to give us true life, that Jesus would rise again. But he says to follow him, that we would have to take up our cross daily. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He goes on to say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. It's kind of what David's saying to Abiathar, isn't it? You can stay with me. You'll lose your life as you know it. But you're safe with me in God's arms because you'll save it. That's what we're called to as well. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit his very self? It's a big challenge to understand this big faith, to know that God's got plans for us no matter what we're going through in life. And I know some of us are going through really hard times in life. 
But God has a purpose and we trust in that, that he's a big God. We need to trust in him and grow in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we live in a time and a place of relative safety. It's easy to be a Christian here in Australia at this time. But Lord, give us hearts that cling to you and look nowhere else. Lord, it's not about what stuff we have or what we don't have, whether we get the glory or whether we get things stripped away from us, but to know by trusting you we are safe. Lord, it's a big moment for us as a church as we talk about these things together, our brothers and sisters all over the world, in a morning where we have baptisms, baptising our children into this church, a church that will say life's not going to be easy, but you'll be safe with Jesus. Lord, please help us to not only grow through that message and through experiences we're going through, let us grow through the words of the, the Syrian hero, that's spoken here this morning but lord help us grow together that through each of us that we walk beside each other strengthening each other pointing to you through all stages of life no matter where we're at we pray for your strength and your guidance because you're a mighty god and we know we're safe with you we pray it in jesus name amen